Well, today is the last in our short series about finding the place where we believe God wants us within the church. And the theme was chosen by Ian last month in light of the dwindling number of folk who seem ready or able to volunteer for those tasks that are essential for the smooth running of the church in general and the Sunday services in particular. And as a reminder, uh, the needs are for the 8.30 service, sound and vision operators and breakfast hosts, for the 10 a.m. Uh, sound and vision, uh, tea and coffee rotor musicians, helping out with the growing uh, children's work, which is such a blessing, and service leaders. And for St. George's, service leaders and anyone willing to lead prayers. So from a practical point of view, of course, many hands make light work, don't they? So the more people we can attract onto these teams, and yes, they are teams, we're not intended to work alone, the easier it will be to maintain, and it becomes then a virtuous circle in contrast to the current situation. Although a small comfort, we're not the only ones. Most UK churches have seen a marked decline in the numbers of volunteers since COVID. Most, that is, but not all. Last week, uh, I was in London and went to Holy Trinity Brompton, which, as ever, was buzzing, completely full, with latecomers unable to find a seat. A warm welcome, powerful worship, relevant teaching. They run introductory courses for their new members, bringing them from the initial attitude of what can the church do for me to what can I do for the church. Everyone was encouraged to join a home group where with such a large congregation they can feel needed and known. And one of the pastors then talked about the value of volunteering and how levels of happiness are said to increase for those who look outward. In fact, she went as far as to say that volunteering has been proven to be better for you than even retail therapy. Now what a bombshell that was, and no doubt music to the ears of the blokes in the audience. Their sermon uh, was on the theme, How to Be Resilient in Challenging Times, and the text was from the letter of James, which I think is relevant to us all. So let me briefly summarize it. James 1, verses 2 to 5. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials, and we can read in there difficulties or challenges of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So there are four points to note very briefly there. First, the use of the word whenever. It's not if ever, or in the unfortunate event that. No, it's whenever. So challenges, difficulties, trials are inevitable. They're going to happen. Second, there is purpose in our pain or difficulty. We often overlook this, don't we, and even resent sometimes the fact that we are suffering. But it's essential that we do to recognize that because unless we do, we're not able to do what James asks of us, namely to rejoice, believing that God will do positive, maybe even great things through it. Thirdly, rely on God for wisdom to make the next move, the right decision at whatever fork in the road we arrive at. Know that God is with us in our trials and so ask him for wisdom or whatever else we might feel we need in order to get through. And lastly, persevere. This comes from one of my favorite Greek words in the New Testament, hypomone, which has the sense of bearing a heavy load, of patiently staying under some form of burden. We translate it as endurance or perseverance, and it's often the single most important component of success. One Irish writer wrote, ever tried, ever failed, try again, fail again, fail better. The refusal to quit. So this radically different way of looking at trials and difficulties can help us see that rather than wearing us down, challenges have the ability to give more than they take to strengthen us. So, encouraged, I hope, by James, what can we do here in St. Juan to improve our current situation, to re-energize the church and refocus on our primary mission, which is to make Jesus known in our parish and in our island. Well, the first place to turn, of course, for inspiration is God's word and our passages from the first book of Corinthians. The end of chapter 12 is a well-known illustration of the church as the body of Christ on earth, like a human body with its limbs and senses. And Paul says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We draw the obvious conclusions. Christ's body on earth comprises all Christians, each of whom is a part, but not, of course, the entire body. And being members of this body, each one will have some function, and a corresponding ability or gift with which to perform it. Paul continues, verse 28, and God did set or place, and we translate appointed, in the church, 
apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, literally those with dunamis or spiritual powers, gifts of healing, helps, governings, the Greek word gubernator, a ship's helmsman, and those speaking in different tongues. The list is not meant to be exhaustive, nor, I think, to establish a hierarchy, but merely to illustrate the wide and varied way in which God has distributed gifts among the many members of his church. And one of the main things that struck me when I arrived as a brand new Christian here in St. Juan in 1989, when Richard picked me up and brought me here, and taught me which way was up, which book to pick up, and when to sit and stand, and so on, um, was the marvellous variety of folk in the congregation. Farmers, teachers, nurses, students, civil servants, lawyers, retired folk, builders, journalists, businessmen and women. And the way they all worshipped and worked so well together was a great witness in itself to me as a new member. And this diversity was celebrated then and is to be celebrated now, but also respected. Because Paul asks, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Well, it's an obvious rhetorical question, isn't it? Which Paul continues in verse 30. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Well, clearly not. Although there may be some duplication, and quite rightly, uh, because the Lord knows that there will be a need for backup and strengthening of teams. So there will be some with the same gift, but not all. And that's Paul's point, to emphasize the variety of the giftings that God bestows. There's also an implication that each member should remain content with the role and gift that has been assigned to them, but that is true only in part because it's also allowed, and indeed encouraged, to seek and acquire certain other gifts. Verse 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. So it's not set in stone because the exercise of our gifts, whatever they may be, in support of our individual roles, ought to be exercised in the context of what Paul goes on to call the most excellent way. In one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, it's often called the Psalm of Love, Paul describes Christian love, or agape in the Greek, that inner spiritual power that must fuel the operation of our gifts if they are to be truly effective. This agape love is distinct from physical love, eros in the Greek, and brotherly love, philia in the Greek, and is almost exclusively um, seen in the New Testament in that it reflects the love that God showed to a world 
that he knew had become vile, and still is, of course, but into which he sent his only son as saviour. Agape is the love that we are asked to show our enemies, those who hate us and who may be totally unrepentant in order that their hatred can be overcome by kindness. And this, of course, is not possible for humans. And so this love can only come from above. And Paul emphasizes the importance of it with some extreme examples. He says, if I speak in the tongues of angels, in other words, the language of heaven, if I know the language of heaven and speak in it, but have not love, I am only a symbol tinkling. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I dole out all my goods to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So in the midst of great gifts, impressive abilities and admirable deeds, the one constant needed to validate them all is love. That's another way of saying that the inside of a deed is different from the outside and God always looks under the bonnet. He looks at our hearts. So up to this point we've seen what happens when love is absent and now we move on to the joy it can bring when present. Indeed, we could say that when this agape love is in our heart, it can transform into blessing any gifts or any deeds we do, small though we may think they are. And Paul then paints a lovely picture of the central qualities of love and not, it has to be said, in ideal surroundings, you know, cosy, mutual friendship and affection, but amid a harsh and uncaring world, and it also has to be said, a faulty church. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not rude or self-seeking. Cure selfishness, it's been said, and you plant a garden of Eden. It is not easily angered. And what a contrast to the low threshold that exists today when people get outraged at the drop of a hat. As a consequence of not being easily enraged, love keeps no record of wrongs. Literally in the Greek, it does not reckon or count evil. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, embracing it gladly and thereby driving out unrighteousness. And after all these negatives, Paul lists four positives. Love always protects enduring and quietly suffering afflictions. It always trusts 
it always hopes, expecting the best out of people, and it always perseveres. So in the context of our theme, love lends essential, even eternal value to our gifts and our works. And in verse 8, we see that love, in fact, outranks all else. Love never fails, and it's implied when Christ returns in glory, prophecies will be abolished. They'll be put out of commission. Why? Because they'll no longer be needed. Tongues will cease, and even knowledge itself will pass away, since the new earth and the new heaven will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And the implication is that this agape love will not pass away, but rather pass over into eternal joy. For in verse 9, he says, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. I remember a BBC science program many years ago hailing the unravelling of DNA and the reporter saying, we are the masters now. And we hear similar human arrogance, don't we, with regard to artificial intelligence. But I submit that while it is right to strive to progress our understanding, we can never attain complete mastery of all truth. And the same applies to prophecy. I think we ought to have the humility to accept the limits set for us in the Word of God, which still provides huge room to exercise our human intelligence. And this is not, of course, to diminish the value of what we have discovered, but the point Paul makes is that even the best of it can only serve an earthly and therefore temporary purpose. Both our knowledge and prophecies shall be surpassed when, as we see in verse 10, perfection comes, as it will with the second coming of Christ. In verse 11, Paul compares our present state with that of childhood, where we know in part, and our future state with that of adulthood, where we've put aside the things of the child. And it's a lovely illustration because it shows, firstly, the vast difference between those two states, but also suggests, I think, how naturally the transition comes about. And he explains further in verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly, as some older translations have it, or literally through a mirror in a riddle. The Greek word there, enigmati, from which we derive enigma. But then, face to face, 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. God knows us intimately, and when we meet him face to face, we shall at last know him directly. And Paul concludes in verse 13, but now remains faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greater of these, love. So while some of our gifts and abilities will pass away, we are told that faith remains as it must, because it's our eternal connection with God and our salvation. Hope, likewise, in the expectation of the ever new and unfolding glory of heaven. And love, which outranks these other two, because love alone makes us like God. It is the nature of faith to receive, and hope also looks forward to receiving, but love gives, and thus brings us more closely into communion with the God who is love itself. And this love is the essential ingredient for the exercise of the gifts and the performance of the roles we each have in the body of Christ on earth, the church, for it to function properly. And it's out of love that I urge us all to act and seek to play our part in God's kingdom here on this beautiful part of earth where he has set us. Amen.